1: I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox-Bolton. On this episode, I speak with Arkansas Senator Clark Tucker, who recently returned to the state legislature. We talked about the factors that went into turning Arkansas from a blue state not that long ago to a deep red state we think of today, and what Democrats need to do to expand our coalition and connect with rural voters. We also talked about what it's like legislating for the minority and his run for Congress that's the subject of a forthcoming documentary, The Good Campaign. Hope you enjoy. Clark Tucker, welcome to An Honorable Profession.
2: I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Debbie.
1: Of course. It's so nice to see you and so much to talk about what's going on in your state and the country as a whole. Love maybe to start with Arkansas, where you are currently sitting in downtown Little Rock. You know what I was, when I was prepping for this, I was just thinking back, I'll age myself, of course, but you know, 30 years ago, we think of now as like Arkansas is so ruby red. And 30 years ago, we had Governor Clinton and we had where you sit in the legislature 30 years ago, you had a 30 Democrat, five Republican majority. And fast forward 30 years and it's flipped, right? Seven Democrats and 24 Republicans. So I guess just for some context setting before we start talking about today and and where we are, kind of what do you attribute the kind of shift in Arkansas to?
2: You really don't even have to go back 30 years. One of the lines I like to use about Arkansas is that we went from a one-party state to a one-party state. Hmm. We had very small transition. You could argue that we had a transition from 2010 to 2014. But before 2010, all seven of our statewide constitutional officers, both of our U.S. senators, three out of our four members of Congress, and about 75% of the legislature was Democratic. And now it's essentially flipped. I have my own theories about it. One is that we had some big personalities, and you mentioned Bill Clinton, but also Dale Bumpers, David Pryor, Mike Beebe, that I think held strength for the Democratic Party in the state for longer, maybe than some other southern states had. And then I think the election of Barack Obama in 2008 was, that was really a turning point. And instead of a gradual decline, like many other southern states had, we had been propped up by those big personalities, and we just went over the cliff. And I think that's what happened when President Obama was elected in 2008. We just saw the state transform overnight at that point.
1: Hmm. You are sitting in the Senate now, and we'll come back to, and talk about that in your state Senate, and you were in your state house before that. But between the two, you ran for Congress yourself in what people called a tight race. You were on the D trip red to blue list. So, you know, people kind of looked at it as a, as a real pickup. I'm just kind of curious about what you felt like in terms of the headwinds of the issues or the perceptions about Democrats down there that meant that you were not ultimately successful in that, which by the way, you were in good company, you know, we talked about Bill Clinton. We got our, our mutual friend who you went to Harvard with Pete Buttigieg, lots of great people have lost races, but what was your take on that?
2: Right. Well, Democrats right now, in my opinion, in the rural parts of the country, and Arkansas is mostly rural, have been defined by Republicans. And Republicans are partly responsible for that, but Democrats are also partly responsible for that. I think nationally, the party, I hesitate to say, has written off rural America because I don't think that's true. But they just haven't paid as much attention to rural America as they probably should. And when you don't communicate with people if you do communicate with people, they hear it. And if you don't, they also receive that message loud and clear as well. And that's the message that rural Arkansas and the rural parts of the country have heard loud and clear. And, you know, it's not just rural Arkansas, but it's also rural Michigan, rural Wisconsin, rural Pennsylvania, and other states that can really determine the outcome of a presidential election. And so I think from a big picture standpoint, the party really needs to do a better job of getting out and really listening to rural America and hearing what they need and what we need in places like Arkansas. But that rural-urban divide, which is more stark now than it's been, at least at any point in my lifetime, to answer your question directly, really impacted my race significantly. In 2018, I carried the city of Little Rock two to one. It was about 67-33. The county where Little Rock is, I carried the county 60-40, and that county is over 50% of the population of the congressional district. And that just tells you, What the margins were in the other counties that are more rural than Pulaski County, where Little Rock sits. So, you know, there are other southern states like New Orleans or Nashville, for example, where the population base of the city is big enough to take up most or all of a congressional district, and Little Rock's population is not quite there. So, it's really this congressional district is, I'm not sure how many districts in the country really are are kind of an urban rural mix like this one was, at least in 2018, when I was running it. Of course, it changed a little bit in in redistricting, but that played a huge role in my race in 2018, from my standpoint.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that so often these things are nationalized. And so you're running with, for good or bad, the perception of the Democratic Party broader than you. But to kind of pull this thread just for a minute more, because I'm curious about you were out there listening to your rural voters in your district. So if you could tell Democrats, Nationally, or in those counties that you're talking about in michigan and, and, and other places, what do you think we need to do besides you were listening? so what are they saying? What do we need to respond to as as a party?
2: Well, I think they feel left behind by the state of the world and and how quickly the world is transforming and and the country as well and I think that's why you know they respond not only to someone like Donald Trump but quite frankly in some cases to someone like Bernie Sanders because whether you agree or disagree. And I certainly have my opinions. <laughs> but these candidates, they're really kind of speaking to people who feel left behind. And if you're not spending the time and attention that you need to spend, then it makes them feel... It, it only exacerbates that feeling from people in, in the rural part of the country. So I really think you got to be very deliberate about getting out there and making sure that they're not left behind. And you know, a lot of times that means it's infrastructure in a lot of different ways. And the Plan that the Biden administration has proposed, and, and Secretary Buttigieg, as you mentioned, I mean, he can define infrastructure in a whole lot of different ways, which I agree with. But obviously, there's going to be broadband and economic development issues like that. But it's also just basic functions of government, like clean water, or to make sure that levees don't collapse, or whatever the case may be, that their communities have a place in the future of of Arkansas, in my case, and, and in America. So they want you to go there. They want to know that they matter to you. And that you're going to really be committed to investing in their community so their community will have a place in the future.
1: Yeah. Speaking of some of those things, specifically like infrastructure, I'm really taken. I don't know if you saw it, but Third Way, our friends over at Third Way did have a poll out last week that only 24 percent of Americans know that the bipartisan infrastructure deal passed is part of this explaining and making sure people, because there's so much noise and there's so much misinformation, there's also just so many other things you are gonna be thinking about and doing. And is part of this kind of also not just listening for sure. And then when we're doing good things, making sure people know about them, is that part of the equation?
2: To me, that's a huge part. That's an absolutely huge part of it. Because we are doing good things, you know, for rural America. And that's, that act is a great example. And as you say, a lot of people don't know about it. Part of it is a cultural thing that's hard to get around because people choose their news sources. Of course, it's all part of the same echo chamber for whatever you're predisposed to want to agree with. And that's something that is a problem for America that people smarter than me are going to have to figure out. But to your question, I mean, we are doing real work that helps people in the rural parts of America, including here in Arkansas. And I think one of the things we really have to do better as a party at doing is getting out there and making sure people know about it. And not only the work that we're doing, but all four members of Congress from Arkansas voted against that. Right. But then when there's a ribbon cutting in a bridge, you know who's there. That's right. So we need to make sure people know who has their backs and also who doesn't. Yeah. We just have to break through all the noise, as you mentioned, to try to get out there. In order to break through that noise, sometimes you have to actually physically show up in places to do it. So because you're not going to do it a lot of times through social media, because people follow who they follow. And it just takes time and work. I think the party, on a broad scale, has to be willing to put in that, that work. If they want to be competitive in places like Arkansas, but that's not the end goal. The goal is to make a difference in places like Arkansas. And the only way you can do that is if you're competitive from a political standpoint.
1: That's right. That's right. I totally agree with you. And I mean, and thinking about the work that you're doing right now in the, in the Arkansas Senate, again, we referenced earlier the big disparity in terms of numbers that you're a pretty huge minority. What does that look like in terms of governing in Arkansas and trying to deliver things to your constituents? And, and how do you work in a body that's so lopsided in terms of, is it mostly defense or is it, how do you work to get things done?
2: Well, there's a variety, I think, of responsibilities. And when I was in the House when I started, we had 36 members out of 100. So proportionally, that was better than it is now. But also when I was in the House, just from a raw numbers standpoint, there were more people to share the load with. Now, as you mentioned, there are seven Democrats in the Arkansas Senate. One of those members, their district went away in redistricting. So it could go down to six. Hopefully it won't. But anyway, it's the small number of people that you have to share the load with. So yes, defense, especially with those small numbers, is a huge part of it. The agenda It seems at this point that when I came into the legislature in 2015, in a minority, a distinct minority, that the agenda was still being set by who I would describe as responsible Republicans. Mm -hmm. And this last session, the agenda was not being set by the responsible Republicans. It was more like the people on the fringe, which makes the defense that much more difficult and more important, because it's just one piece of culture war legislation after another that really victimizes People, oftentimes vulnerable people like transgender teenagers, for example, or people who have a tough time getting to the polls to vote or whatever the case might be. So, yes, fighting back as hard as you can on bills like that, killing those bills is a huge piece of it. When the bills pass, which unfortunately at times they do, I think one of our most important responsibilities, and this hit me harder this last session than it has before, is to make sure that everyone in the state knows that they have a voice inside the state capitol.
0: Mm-hmm. They may
2: not agree with the policy coming out of the capitol but they know that there are people in there who are fighting for them and, and giving a voice to them. I really think that's, that's huge. When you're operating a political dynamic like I am, again, in a very small minority, you have to have strong relationships with your colleagues on the other side of the aisle for all of these reasons. Because when you give a voice to someone who, in my judgment, is being victimized by bad legislation, you want people to hear what you're saying and not just have it go in one ear and out the other. And I, and I know That my colleagues do. And I really think that that can make a difference, maybe not on that vote on that day, uh, but at some point in the future. And then I think because of those relationships, I really can work with most, if not all of the members in the body. And they may have a bill that I don't agree with, but I have a concern about it and I can go air it out with them. Maybe not every time, but sometimes they will amend the bill based on our conversation. And I still may vote against it even after they amend it. But it's a better piece of legislation from my standpoint than it was before. Nobody will ever really even know about that except for you and the bill sponsor but that's the only way you were able to get it done because if people did find out about it,
0: <laughs> they yeah. might
2: not do it. But that's a big part of it and then to wrap up, I'm kind of rambling, but you know there are a lot of policies that I would want to pass that I think are critically important, like child care and paid family leave and things like that that are just going to be tough to pass in Arkansas right now but if you are careful and smart about the issues that you really want to champion. Then I do think there are some things that you can get through the process that really make a a very meaningful difference in people's lives. So you have to be careful about the issues that that you pick because you know they can pass on a bipartisan basis. And then you have to have the relationships to be able to get it done.
1: Yeah. Well, and you you have had success in both the House and, and the Senate. One thing that New Deal publicized or highlighted was your uh, the Dolly Parton imagination literacy program, which is Absolutely. amazing and such a great. So maybe tell people a little bit about that because it's such a inspiring initiative.
2: This is an easy one to love. <laughs> this is a perfect example of, you know, something that can work anywhere, no matter what the climate is, because again, this is just so easy to love. First of all, it was founded by Dolly Parton. Who doesn't like Dolly Parton? <laughs> I love Dolly Parton. Who doesn't
1: yeah. love Dolly Parton? Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> it sends one book per month, an age appropriate book to kids from birth through their fifth birthday. And there's an early childhood panel of experts that picks a book for a two-month-old when they're two months old and and so forth. It's free to the child. The total cost for the program is $2.10 per book. That's because the Dollywood Foundation has negotiated rates with the Penguin Press and the U.S. Postal Service. So that's manufacturing, shipping, everything. So if a child is registered at birth and by their fifth birthday, they have 60 books for a grand total cost of $125. You know, I can start early childhood education is so important to me. There's there's no investment we can make that has a greater return than early childhood investment. As of right now, you know, we spend 95% of our public education dollars after a child's fifth birthday and 95% of their social, emotional and neurological development is before their fifth birthday. So there's a whole lot we can do in early childhood, but this one is just so cost effective that there's, it's just really easy to get behind and support. And it's just such a feel-good program, too. But beyond literacy, kids learn social and emotional skills through this program. They sit in their parent or grandparent or whoever's lap and ask to be read to. They learn pre-literacy skills like turning pages and going left to right. So by the time they show up to pre-K or kindergarten, they're ready to learn. This program was founded originally in Tennessee, of course, where Dolly is, and kids have been doing it for about 15 or 16 years there now. So we have a cohort of 15 and 16-year-olds, some who were in the program and some who weren't. And across the board, the kids who run the program, they perform better in school. And all of the benefits that we know from early childhood education, like less likely to get pregnant as teens. We haven't got to high school graduation rates yet because they're not there, but it feels good. But the impact is huge across the board, and it's something that every state can do.
1: Yeah, that's so wonderful. Presumably huge bipartisan support, one would think and hope, right?
2: That's right. That's right. And one last thing about the program, and Dollywood wants it this way, they want it to be a 50% match between the state or some other public entity, and then every individual county has to raise 50% of their own funds. So it's not an exclusively government program, which also has some appeal. And a fiscally conservative state like mine.
1: Absolutely, and what great numbers to be able to show the impact and the effectiveness of that of that program. I mean, I, another thing I wanted to ask you about is something that was a little, probably a little harder. Which was, I think, when you were in the House, you were really involved in the Medicaid expansion efforts and trying to make sure that people had healthcare access in Arkansas. I'm just curious, kind of, about how you got involved in that, and you know, and and what those conversations were like, particularly as so many states were rejecting what seems that, that was just it was a national issue right but you guys had some success in arkansas how how did that happen
2: yes i don't know how long my legislative career is going to be but i don't know that i'll ever do anything as impactful as the work we did in, in medicaid expansion and it's something that i'm very proud of and is very fulfilling so arkansas actually expanded medicaid before i was in the house okay it was one of only two southern states to do so at the time arkansas and kentucky it's actually a heavier lift in arkansas because of a constitutional provision we have, we can only appropriate money with a three quarters supermajority vote. So, you know, the other southern states couldn't get 51%. We got 75%. And it was because we did it in a different way. Instead of taking the dollars and expanding traditional Medicaid, we took the same amount of dollars and bought private insurance premiums for the same population on the market. And that was a Compromise between then Democratic Governor Mike Beebe and the legislature was about 50 50 at that point when they did it. So when I came in, Governor Beebe was replaced with his successor, a Republican Governor, Asa Hutchinson, and the legislature went from 50 50 to two to one, Republican Mm -hmm. to Democrat. But that actually doesn't even tell the whole story because there were a number of Republican legislators who had voted for Medicaid expansion who lost their primary elections to other Republicans. So everyone. Just knew that we called it the private option. That the private option was done, and that's that's where I got engaged. You know, healthcare. I had my own healthcare, as you know. I was I was diagnosed with cancer, and and I'm cancer free. Thank the Lord. Uh, but it just puts everything in perspective. That if you don't have health and nothing else, you can't do anything else. Nothing else matters. Health comes first. And about ten percent of our state's population was enrolled in the private option and and had access to healthcare for the first time in their lives through that program. And to take that away was just unconscionable to me. It was unfathomable. So we dug in and basically, and I have to give Governor Hutchinson a lot of credit because without his support, there's no chance that it would have passed. But the trick was still getting to that 75% threshold in the House and the Senate because we had to get again, only about a third of the body at that time was Democratic. So you had to get over half of the Republican caucus on board to vote for it. And we just came up with a very elegant, well, basically it came down to, I can get into the nitty gritty if you want. And this you can see how. <laughs> how I love
1: somebody, it. I love that you're so passionate about it. It's an amazing testament to being able to get people together, right? I mean, we don't, we, we kind of, I mean, I don't want to get you off track here, but I mean, we, I feel like there's this sense of defeatism, right? That we are, there's no way now to bring the two parties together to to make progress. Do you still have hope that things like that are possible that you were able to do a few years ago?
2: Yeah, I do. Because a lot of those people, just to back out to the big picture a little bit again, they had gotten elected on the promise of repealing, quote, Obamacare, Mm -hmm. even though you can't obviously repeal Obamacare at the state level, but that's what they meant. And so to we had to come up with a solution where people could keep their campaign promises. But once they got to the legislature, they saw the impact on the state budget, the impact on the state population, the impact on rural hospitals, which was also huge and, and cannot be understated, and became convinced that it was the right thing to do, but they had made this campaign promise. And so we really rolled up our sleeves and figured out a way to make that happen. And that's what we did. And we were able to, to get enough votes to make that happen. But you know, even last year in the session, which was so hard in in so many ways. It's interesting. I've worked on on a bill. Obviously, 2020 was a huge year for absentee voting in the United States. And in Arkansas, it just exposed some flaws in the absentee voting system. So I put together an absentee voting bill that was not ideological. It was truly pragmatic just to make the system function better, at least from my standpoint. But Given the fact that I'm a Democrat in Arkansas and the extreme minority, there were a lot of people. And given the dynamics around voting security propagated by Trump and his supporters, that bill was probably just never going to pass. But it was such an interesting experience. I worked with several Republican colleagues, including some of the most conservative in the Arkansas Senate. And I made so many amendments to the bill, probably over 30 amendments to the bill. Because as I said, it wasn't ideological and they had suggestions. I took them and put them in the bill and they became some of my staunchest allies on this piece of legislation. You could go to the Arkansas legislative website and watch what happened. But just to sum it up, there was some controversy about how the bill got out of committee and I was going to go do the diplomatic thing and pull the bill down. I was going to send my own bill back to committee, which would kill it because it was the last couple of days of session. and There wasn't enough time to get it back out and, and turn it around. And my republican colleagues who i had worked with and that's just a routine thing if a member goes down to send their own bill back to committee it's a five second thing it passes unanimously every time never seen anything happen differently and i went down to essentially kill my own bill and send it back to committee and my republican colleagues who had seen how hard i'd worked on the bill and had asked me to make all these changes that i had made they went down and opposed my request to kill my own bill that's amazing Isn't that amazing? Yes. It was more than one and two of them, a few of them are just some of the most conservative members of the Arkansas Senate. So the bill, it ended up not passing. Their point was Senator Tucker deserves to have his day on the floor. They did vote for the bill when it came time to vote on the merits. All of my colleagues basically agreed, said, yes, let the bill have its day on the floor. And then a few stuck with me on the actual vote. The bill failed on the floor because of the political pressure from the MAGA crowd outside of the state capitol. But anyway, it was sad because the bill failed, but also it gave me hope in the way that everything happened
0: that day.
1: Yeah, that's so wonderful to hear. And I mean, it's just so frustrating that it feels like to your point that you were talking about kind of who was setting the agenda in Arkansas, this legislative term, it just feels like there's some, there really is, I believe actually still that there is a consensus on most issues, kind of a common sense consensus. And that it just feels like We're being pulled by a very small minority of extremism on on one side and places like where you live. I'm hopeful that 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 changes. And I'm super happy to hear that story because it gives me a little hope that maybe that kind of camaraderie and commitment to governing together is not dead (laughs) entirely, right?
2: I totally agree.
1: That's my hope. I do want to ask you, we wrap about your kind of own... Journey into public service. I did not know. We've been friends for a while, but I did not know until I researched this, that you were in elected office in your high school, I believe. And you actually started a foundation in high school, which I'm not going to have the name right. The Tiger Foundation, was that what it was? That's right. To help some of your fellow students that needed financial help, which I just was so amazed by. And then fast forward, you you went to Harvard, you went to law school back in Arkansas. Clearly, public service or being involved in your community was something that was instilled in you all the way in high school. But did you always kind of think this was your path to be an elected official or what were you thinking?
2: Yes, I've always been fascinated by politics. You know, when I was growing up, my heroes were Bo Jackson and Michael Jordan, but also Dale Bumpers and David Pryor. Mm -hmm. And at least in Arkansas, the name of this podcast is is strongly associated with Dale Bumpers. One of his, he called what he said, a noble profession. He always spoke about politics being a noble profession. And that had a big impact on me and inspired me. I have a very civic-minded family. My dad and mom both are engaged in the community about as much as you can possibly be. Neither one of them ever ran for office. I'm not sure that I I had it in my mind for certain that I wanted to run for office, but I did have it in my mind for certain that I wanted to be engaged in the community. And of course, there are a lot of ways to do that. Running for office is certainly one of them. Both my granddad served on the school board, my paternal grandfather here in Little Rock and my maternal grandfather in another town. And my granddad actually ran for the state Senate in Little Rock for largely the same seat that I represent, but he didn't win that election. So I have had some other family members run for office. But again, my bigger concern was just being engaged in the community. As you mentioned, I went to law school and I was a young lawyer and working long hours as young lawyers do. And not to be critical of the legal profession, I'm still a lawyer and there's some great lawyers out there, but I just didn't feel fulfilled in what I was doing. I needed something more. And at that time, the term limits in Arkansas were pretty short. And so the state house seat opened up and this was this was in 2014. So as we've discussed, it was right when Arkansas was transitioning. It was never a question for me whether I was going to come back to Arkansas after I went away to college. Being here, I mean, Arkansas is part of my DNA. And it's like an immediate family member or something. There's mm-hmm. just nowhere else I can be that I can see. And so when I saw the state moving in the direction that it was moving in, I had a choice that I could either sit on the sidelines or be engaged. And uh, when my state house seat opened up, That opportunity presented itself and put that choice in very stark terms for me, and it was really a a no-brainer.
1: Yeah, well, we're so lucky to have you there. And did you ever think you were going to be a movie star? (laughs) (laughs) I gather that there's a documentary out about your campaign called "A Good Campaign," and I think that's so exciting. And I haven't seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. How was that? Did someone follow you? I think it was your sister or sister-in-law or sister who part of the producing team. That must have been a, a pretty interesting experience to have that documented.
2: It's a wild experience. First of all, just to have a camera follow you around all day, every day, for however it was only for her about the last five days of the campaign. My sister is a filmmaker. She was approached by another filmmaker who had the idea and knew my sister and thought that it might work in our case because my sister is also a filmmaker. And yes, so, but it's even weirder. As odd as it is to have someone follow you around with a camera, you know, as candidates, you get sort of numb to that. But it's very odd to watch an hour footage of yourself, especially on a big screen. That was uh, an an out of, and for me, fairly uncomfortable experience. (laughs) But, uh, But anyway, it's interesting. I didn't realize this until we sort of had a premiere here in Little Rock. But because my sister was one of the filmmakers, you know, there's footage of me on the campaign trail, as there is in a lot of political documentaries. But because my sister was one of the filmmakers, she just was hanging around with my family a lot, with me and my kids who were pretty young at the time. I think there's a lot more in that documentary about the impact that a campaign has on Mm -hmm. a family because of that. That was the feedback that I got after other people had seen it. And I think it's going to go up on Amazon sometime in the near future where you could watch it from. So anyway, I'll let you know.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see that. And, you know, it just brings up a, a good point, which I can't emphasize enough on this broadcast in particular, just about what it's like to be an elected official. So thanks for kind of bringing that into the conversation because the impact on your family, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice. And right now in the environment we've been talking about with how just crazy it is out there, frankly, and this vitriol really pointed at elected officials so often, I just always want to make a point to thank you and thank your other fellow new dealers who are out there serving because it is an honorable profession and it's an important profession. I feel like we just have lost sight of that sometimes. So that part of the podcast goal is to kind of make sure that people hear that over and over again, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, people approach me as that I'm sure they do all the new dealers when they're interested in running for office. And one of the th- things I say is that before I ran, I, I knew I'll be putting myself out there, but I thought that would be it. But that's not true. You you are putting your whole family out there and your whole family has to sign up for it. So it's a real commitment and sacrifice for your whole family. And I wouldn't be able to to do it without mine. So thank you for seeing that. Yeah,
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you have a beautiful family. So please uh, say hello for us. And thank you so much, Clark, for being here with me today. It was really such a pleasure and honor to get to talk to you.
2: Well, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Debbie. Thank you for having me.
1: (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.